very warm welcome to our latest episode of Zooming In On Hate. And we're really, really delighted to be joined by Benjamin Fisher, who is project manager at the Alfred Landecker Foundation. Benjamin, thanks so much for joining us on Zooming In On Hate. Thanks for having me, Lydia. Super excited for the interview and great to see you again. Great. So if anybody doesn't know about the work of the Alfred Landecker Foundation, can you tell us a little bit broadly about the mission? Sure. We're actually a fairly new player, I would say, in, in the field of combating hate online. The foundation itself was founded around three years ago. It's a private foundation. And our work is built around five pillars. Those are confronting the past, combating anti-Semitism, protecting minorities, strengthening democracy, and depolarizing debates. That's a bit generic. And I guess our portfolio is as wide as, as these pillars are apart from each other. But it's fair to say that we have a very wide-ranging set of programs that do not necessarily all focus on the topic that we're discussing today. We really do focus on strengthening democracy. And within this work, I run our uh, department on digital transformation. So everything that has to do with online regulation, but really also with you know forward thinking, political theory in the digital age. So that's, that's what I get to do on a daily basis. We are not an operative funder. So we do not do projects on our own. We try to give away funds and then work very closely with the projects we're, we're supporting. And obviously there, you know, things vary drastically. In some cases, you're working with universities and it's all about thinking and, and challenging each other. And then sometimes it's very hands-on businessy or sometimes we do strategic litigation with our projects. Yeah, we're based in Berlin. Our team consists of around 16 people. And what's also interesting is that no one on our team is a specialist. So we were put together coming from very different communities, from very, very different backgrounds. And uh, every project we're working on, we always do in pairs so that we get to challenge each other with the very different viewpoints that we get. So in short, basically, we're being paid to constantly argue and fight each other <laughs> over the best idea. But the end result usually... I think is something to be proud of and, and, you know, in a best case scenario is also very impactful. Well, I think, you know, the phrase strengthening democracy might have been a little bit hollow, say, five, ten years ago, but it rings so true today more than ever before. So I'm sure our listeners, anybody who's found Zooming In on Hate will care about strengthening democracy. And I'm sure they're nodding away hearing about the pillars that the Alfred Landecker focus on. And can you break it down for us, make it as practical as possible? What kind of activities do you do to combat hate and disinformation? We know Miro Dietrich from CEMAS, he's been on Zooming in on hate and he's given us a taste of the, of the work there they do. And what is the objective behind supporting organizations like CEMAS? So we do have a very strong digital focus on the foundation because, uh, you know, the old dogma that the online world and the offline world are not necessarily the same is gone. And fairly speaking, we do hear it far too often, still, especially also from politics, right? Even saying that what happens online affects the offline world or, or vice versa is, is mistaken or is, 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 is flawed because those are the same. We live in an age where, where these two worlds cannot be divided. This, bearing this in mind, the foundation has this very strong focus. And in there, our work really takes a bit of a holistic approach. Why do we call this, this department digital transformation? Because no one really knows what the future brings, right? And a mistake that we've done in the past, let's say, 
six or seven years is that big parts of especially online politics still only focus on social media. So digital transformation is obviously a lot wider reaching. Why do we want to take this different angle? Why do we not only want to focus on social media? Because we found that civil society in this in this limbo between platforms and, and politics is A, too weak in its voice, but B, is also too reactive. We actually have to start looking forward. And if the future is not necessarily too, or if it's a bit shallow what's to come, then we need to start thinking in funnels. You know? We need to start being prepared for what it might come. And the further we are looking forward, the more theoretical our work should become. And that's why we have academic projects and we have hands-on projects that mostly focus on uh, data collection, monitoring, but really on, on online activism. And I, now I will make it even more precise because I know this is what you've been looking for. And, you know, I could stay on this meta level the entire day because obviously that's the, the most fun of my work. So CMAS is a very good example. Here's an organization that did not exist two years ago, but there was a clear need for it, not only in Germany, but we see it now all over Europe, right? So a need for constant online monitoring that is able to quickly react to what's happening online. We founded this organization, you know, we gave them seed funding to, to be set up. Plus, we help them in the entire process of building a new organization, right? Like a bit like a company builder. I knew all of them before from different capacities. So we, we knew that they can be trusted and we knew of the quality of their work. And, and what we realized is that there was this necessity to be able, especially in front of policymakers, to start using evidence-based argumentation. But on the side of civil society, we'd still just run around showing screenshots of, you know, something horrible that was said online and saying, hey, that's a big problem. And at the same time, no one was willing to put their money where their mouth was, meaning that, you know, in order to be able to, to start using evidence-based argumentation, you also need a constant inflow of data. You cannot only start monitoring when something happened because then it's too late. But you know it's same as, so I'm not going to focus too much about that. What is important to know is that we are looking into building similar organizations all over Europe. We have started focusing a lot on the issue of uh, disinformation. So working together with the Alliance for Europe, with Reset Tech, with the Open Society Foundation, that was a collaboration that started right after the Russian invasion of Ukraine in order to be able to, you know, get a European perspective of what, what disinformation narratives are out there in Europe. We have an academic, a few academic programs, one at Cambridge University, the other one at Oxford University, one at TU Berlin, for example, that is building, uh, they, they use machine learning in order to build an algorithm that will eventually be able to identify implicit forms of hate, which, you know, is, is the hardest to get because here is, I mean, we live in a time when no one openly says that they are haters. <laughs> they always are apologetic about their own political stances. So you do need algorithms that are able to differ between the signal and the noise when it comes to hate speech. And then maybe a few last examples. Just today, actually, I will meet with one of the projects that I'm managing, which is with HateAid, who have also ventured out into Brussels. I think you've also been in contact with them. And they do both campaigning around the DSA, also lobbying, and they do strategic litigation in the project that we, that we built up together. And just today, they will sue a large online platform. I mean, looking at my, at my watch, I probably can't mention it yet. On the other hand, it will be aired at a later point. So since Chatham House rules do apply, yeah, we're suing Twitter. Well, they are. And that's going to be big. You know, it's, it's together with a student organization, with a youth movement that I used to work with back then in Brussels. And 
So that's just a few examples. We work with Algorithm Watch on algorithmic transparency, you know, around the DSA again. But to make it very, very short, okay, <laughs> a very long story short, we always try to jump in as a funder the moment that we think that the stances of civil society in the battle on, uh, around the internet can be strengthened, long-term speaking. And we have developed a concept for that actually in-house that is, so to say, our North Star, because we realized if we want to stop being reactive and want to start looking forward, then we need, so to say, a state that we are aiming for, right? Again, going back to this funnel logic. And we call this digital resilience. It's, it's our best case scenario. A society that we want to build should be digitally resilient. And the, you know what that features, I can maybe specify at a later point in this interview. That's really interesting. And it's such, mm-hmm. such a broad spectrum of activities. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's so laudable at the core that it's making, making society a better, safer place to be implicit hate that's you know and i i think it's it's so important to focus on that you mentioned teu are, are are working on it and particularly with the digital services act i think this is going to be the big issue going forward is how do we detect as hate as it goes further and further underground and becomes more and more cloaked so benjamin we've touched a few times on on the erosion of democracy and I mean, we're all concerned about the challenges posed to democracy by the digital age and everything it brings with it. Do you think that civil society, politics, tech platforms are actually ready, willing and able to address the challenges and issues that they pose? So I started working in the field of online regulation around 2015. And it was interesting to see that there was a major shift in public perception of the topic. Whereas in 2015, this was still seen as a bit of a juvenile topic where, you know, folks would send their interns in many cases because they thought this is only about social media, right? 2016 really was a turning point. And that was because of Cambridge Analytica. It was of Trump. And, you know, and then then the various well-known documentaries that came out afterwards, election mingling, all of these things. And ever since we've been trying to, to basically get on hold of this thing, but I would argue that society has large has not yet um, gained control over the situation. We don't need to speak about why democracy is, is under threat in 2023 anymore. I think this is too apparent. And also the role that you know, various social media platforms have played in this. I, I do not need to specify this. There are far too many examples and, and pressing examples that we're still working on. Let's more speak about the, the mechanisms behind it. I think politics want to very much appear as if they get hold of things, but they're very slow. We've seen this with the DSA, right? Basically, the DSA is the reaction to what happened in 2016. And, you know, a few years have passed ever since. And then with civil society, we are very much on the scandalization side of things. I I said in another question before that, uh, in in my other answer, that, you know, we are too reactive. What do I mean by that is is that far too often civil society is not part of the solution. There are too few constructive attempts of, you know, solving an issue. And, you know, for apparent reasons, because we are all affected by this. I mean, you know, just go on the street, ask a random person whether they think there are issues on the Internet. And probably most, I mean, it's very likely, statistically speaking, every person you'll speak to is affected by hate online, one way or the other. And then lastly, the platforms obviously are guided by, first and foremost, by their business interest. And we haven't even started touching upon the topic that now we have states 
that that own platforms on their own, right? So they are there are even worse interests that might be involved. But I don't want to go there as well. In short, if we want to bring democracy, if you want to update democracy in the digital age, we need to start fixing this triangle of shifting responsibilities. And, and this is really where we come in as a funder. What, what I said before is we, we, we built this idea, this theory of digital resilience. And the idea here is to, on the one hand, have a North Star that we are aiming for, but at the same time, also a methodology on how to especially focus on civil society work around this topic. And that really reaches from digital literacy over uh, strategic litigation, over pure lobbying, or in the end of the day, also uh, research. And, and, and basically what we, I, I think the solution that is out there is putting a lot of human rights activists together in a room with a lot of techies, you know, lock them in there and hope that the end result after a few days will be of help. Obviously, keep bearing in mind that most techies are not necessarily attracted by this sector at all, uh, because you, you earn more and you have a, an easier living and, and you have a bright future if you either work for a platform or you work for the baddies. So enough challenges to face. Absolutely. And to make things even more difficult, I mean... Never mind the, the challenges of the digital age. We also, we have had crisis after crisis. We've got through COVID. Some people are not even through the pandemic in one way. The war in Ukraine, the cost of living crisis. How much of a role do these crises play in the work you're doing? Oh, a lot. <laughs> I mean, maybe the, the most, it's okay. I, I will say it bluntly. Before the crisis, we would appear on, on death lists of Nazis. Now we, we are listed by states, you know, uh, and those aren't necessarily death lists, but, you know, those are lists that you don't necessarily want to appear. But a, a more broad answer would be that there are something that we've been speaking of for so long has become so apparent and open the moment uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine started. And that is that most of these, especially fringe platform groups, Let's, let's say telegram groups, for example, that have spread disinformation, that have spread especially, you know, hate and, and, and narratives around, around COVID from one day to the other shifted their focus on spreading Russian disinformation. And I mean, obviously, it's very, very hard to prove Russian involvement when it comes to financing these structures. We've seen dozens of examples in the past, however, and I think this is, you know, it, it, it's striking. And then obviously, the, the more important part is that every crisis serves as fuel for anti-democratic movements. And it's very, very easy to um, leverage the suffering of people. And unfortunately, we've seen too many people doing this. So, uh, I mean, you've spoken to Tsemas, you, you've heard about the, the things that they've encountered online, plus the numbers they share, right? I mean, th th that is pretty obvious. Fairly speaking, we, we are a bit happy with how the winter has been going so far because we've, we've expected worse. We started actually an entire research project around uh, sentiment analysis of you know, German and also US uh, population around the energy crisis. And our finding, the, the findings thus far, like I shouldn't be too detailed because they aren't published yet, but what, what we are able to say is that so far there has not been a tipping point in society. Right. Like people might trust institutions a lot less these days, but it's not it's not that we are 
you know, the situation might be desperate, but it's not too worse. Like we are able to work with it, uh, but it's a challenge and it, it really should be seen as a, as a mission for all of us. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's a bit easy to say that, right? When no one really knows how to get involved, but I really do mean it. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, it's great that the tipping point hasn't been reached. And, and, and I think we're all pleasantly surprised by how galvanized support for Ukraine has been and how people were prepared to take the hit to make personal sacrifices for the greater good, for, for want of a better phrase. So you touched on it here where anti-establishment sentiment is, is rife on, on social media. Are you worried about how that can erode democracy? And is there anything we practitioners, tech, civil society, academia can do about it? Absolutely. I do think that there are quite a few things that practitioners should bear in mind when, when facing these, these issues. Number one is because there are so many things that might seem as if they need a direct response I think for practitioners, it's very important to bear in mind that there is a greater good to work for or a larger, what we, what I refer to as a North Star, right, to aim for. Because if we're constantly running behind events that are unfolding in, in front of us, we will never get to a proper solution when it comes to formulating how the internet should look like uh, in, 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 in our democratic world. I think the one thing that I'm the most afraid of now really is the splinternet. Because the current geopolitical events will eventually translate one way or the other into a complete change of, of online infrastructure if things are moving the way they look like. And then for practitioners, really the 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 one thing, the one thing that we should work on as especially as civil society is at least trying to overcome this divide between the parts of civil society that focus more on civil rights and the parts that focus their work a lot more around the freedom of the internet. Because I think that there are too few examples of coalitions that have been able to, to make a difference when it comes to working on policy or when it comes to formulating claims. One would be people versus big tech. But it's, it's one of the few examples that I can think of where strong partners from both sides of, of this spectrum actually have come together. And, you know, it's, it's a bit sad that the lowest common denominator was basically saying there is an issue with big tech, because that is pretty obvious. Everything above that, that it's hard to rally around. And for practitioners, I think it, it's about time to start overcoming this divide, at least for pragmatic reasons. Thank you. Thanks, Benjamin. We also mentioned briefly the DSA, the Digital Services Act. And I think there is confusion out there about what the real real world implications will be of the DSA and where will that line be drawn between freedom of expression versus the freedom to live without discrimination and abuse. Do you see a way out of this kind of eternal argument and back and forth and where to draw the line? I mean, the argument will always appear because it's the easiest way for those who do not want to take responsibility for their own platform <laughs> to hide uh, their business interest, right? Like no one would, to quote it, let's put it that way. But there is a point. There's a very good point around it. I mean, let's use the example of, I think it was Ethiopia, right? Where parts of the DSA were basically just copied uh, and are now being used to suppress freedom of speech. 
So this form of legislation can be misused if, it, if it's being put in the wrong hands. That is a real danger. And, and, and we see it in other parts of the world as well. So first of all, for the, for the DSA to properly be enforced and to properly put into action, we, we need to look at how the institutions that are mentioned in it will be set up, right? And then number two, how national um, enforcement will look like, because ultimately this is what it comes down to. And I guess that there are a few countries who are somewhat used to working in this field, predominantly those countries that had their respective legislation in place before, so France, Germany, for example. There are a few other examples where, you know, institutional frameworks were put up before. I think Denmark is a good example. But then there are quite a few countries who do not really have the ministerial structure also to deal with this topic. So I think what will be of fundamental importance in the, in the next, let's say, one or two years is also international collaboration around the enforcement of the DSA. So bringing practitioners around the same table for them to exchange best practices so that more experienced, well, bureaucrats, right? Because this is what it comes down to, will share their, their experience, their insights with, with those who you know, will work in, in, in a governmental body that is newly set up, that is being put in an infrastructure that is not at all built to work around the issue of online regulation. This will really be of the essence. And, and I, I guess that's why only in one or two years from now, we will see whether the DSA will actually have an effect or not, or which effect it will have. Now, with regard to the second part of your question, I, I did use a few examples already. So, you know, this legislation can always be misused if it's being put in the wrong hands. But I want to say that the argument in itself, at least in my mind, to my mind, should not be the only reason or the main reason for working against this legislation. And this has happened so often. And this is what's been bothering with me with, um, when it comes to the debate around the DSA. We cannot constantly juxtapose freedom of speech and online regulation. It's not necessary that you can have one without the other. And um, it's a bit unfair, to be honest to not come up with a proper solution, but constantly point fingers when it gets to any potential danger for freedom of speech. You know, there is as much a danger to freedom of speech when people start leaving platforms because their civil rights are not being protected. And, you know, those who have built these public spaces do bear the responsibility to ensure that this is not the case. So this passive side of freedom of speech needs to be taken into consideration when it comes to to uh, criticizing legislation such as the DSA. But yeah, I mean, maybe as a last point, if I, if I look at the political developments also in Germany, looking at how many far-right parties are, you know, in, in some cases even running countries, <laughs> or let me use this uh, horrible term of, of post-fascist, how are these folks gonna, gonna use this form of legislation? Right. I mean, for many times people said, what is this going to do to the cultural apparatus? Like once far right parties will decide what art and, and what forms of activism uh, will be will be funded. But what's it going to do to online regulation? What's it going to do to the first attempts that we finally had on the international level to to regulate uh, online spheres? Because as, as much as, as as these parties might have opposed these forms of legislation, Who's going to say that they won't misuse it? Who's going to say that they will get rid of it once in power and not actually use it in order to combat their, their political opposition? And this is something that I'm actually really afraid of. As long as this is not the case, as long as our democratic systems are able to 
uphold against the attempts of uh, destroying democracy from uh, you know polemics, we are on a good side. Last thing, I think that with a DSA, you know, it deserves its time to be put under, well, to, to be tested, but we should already look ahead and, and, and formulate new solutions. And this is what's, for example, happening with the, I mean, there's the code of practice that's now coming out, right? On combating disinformation. So the commission has learned from the past. They, they have so many new platforms to, to adjust legislation or to find pragmatic solutions. So yeah, time will tell. And do you, just totally off the top of my head, do you see a time frame in your, just in, in your personal opinion for the DSA kicking in? When do you think we'll get to see the fruits of the protection it promises us everyday people who, as you rightly say, I mean, it's hard to find anybody who's not touched by the mm-hmm. digital age. So for the DSA to take effect, realistically speaking, I think we, we need to speak about a time frame of at least two years. Right. Because only now national, well, institutional frameworks to to enforce it are being set up for them to actually take effect and then learn from their own mistakes. It will take some time. Maybe I'm too pessimistic here, but really in order to learn how things go, in order to smoothly see change, I think one or two years, probably two. Yeah. And then afterwards, you know, we speak about adjusting the DSA. So learning from what's not been going well. And then, you know, this is when we only start a new drafting process for potential legislation that might follow. So the DSA will be in effect for, or will, you know, fundamentally shape the future of how our online interaction will look like for at least 10 years. Yeah. Until new forms of legislation might, might appear. So it's, it's huge. It's vast. And, and, People aren't too aware of what's about to unfold, right? right? Which is another issue. The divide between legislators and broader public that's not able to even grasp this part of work. It's a bit like the, the GDPR, right? Like everyone is annoyed by these cookie banners <laughs> and everyone sees so many <laughs> of them every day. But how many people actually understood that this was directly connected to the GDPR and this is directly connected to us trying to formulate a solution on on how our own personal data is being used. So let's hope that, you know, the DSA will not necessarily end up uh, in in a similar situation. To be fair, I'm not too optimistic. I'm hoping that things are going to be much, much better um, than Mm -hmm. the prognosis. Mm -hmm. Just winding up our, our chat today, Benjamin, I I wanted to talk to you about, we, we touched on the kind of weakness of civil society in the digital age. You, you mentioned the lack of evidence-based research. And I have to say, I'll always remember that holding up a screenshot of something horrendous as, as evidence, it just, that day is gone. We just, civil society has to do better, has to step up. What other solutions do you think there are for civil society to be more effective in combating hate and disinformation? So first and foremost, uh, data collection. So the one real issue that I see with the platforms is their intransparency with regard to the data they hold and our inability to access it, right? So in order to overcome this challenge, data collection is a good, is a good means. And so monitoring projects are of the essence. I said it before, but let me reiterate that really if we cannot quantify a problem, if we cannot qualify a problem, but we're merely 
well, bound to referring to it, how, how could we draft good policy around it? How could we actually find solutions? We need to understand the problem. And for that, we need better access to data. And then secondly, we need to think about how to process that data. And yet again, it's mostly platforms that hold the algorithms, that hold the tools to be able to, to properly do this. So we have two solutions. Either we try to get access to this and the DSA actually will give us opportunities for that. Or again, we, we start building our own tools. With the foundation, we actually we're trying to support both. One of the programs that we just launched with Algorithm Watch is completely built around the issue of algorithmic transparency. They are basically building a blueprint for the newly offered opportunity around the DSA to gain access to some of the algorithms of platforms. And why is this blueprint so important? Because there are very, very few people in Europe, but even on this planet, who hold the expertise to properly analyze an algorithm and at the same time are not working for a platform and are willing to get involved in human rights issues and are not corrupted, right? So are, are so to say, third-party inspectors. So in, in order for this process to be, to be more successful, we need a better understanding of how to best look at these algorithms. And this is something that Algorithm Watch is building that I think is, a, is really a, to be seen as a best practice in the field. And then lastly, yeah, the entire topic needs to be taken a bit more seriously. We need more folks getting involved. We need established NGOs to finally get into the discussions around the online realms. And we need those NGOs that have been around in the topic to be a bit more, let's say, open with regard to welcoming new organizations in, in their fields, to be a bit less protective around uh, what it is they are doing, right? Because we have a few established players that are well-known internationally, but they can't do it all on their own. And monitoring is one good example. Like, I think there are very few organizations who hold the capacity of doing their own monitoring, doing their own analysis around this, and then doing also policy work and lobbying. Do we want for all of these things to be to be combined under one and the same roof? Or wouldn't it make sense to have a variety of different players interacting here? And obviously, we're part of the second option. I can hear civil society shouting, it's because of the funding cycle. This is why they're pitted against each other. But I, I think you're completely right. The, the day for intense collaboration is here. It's now. And civil society need to step up. Yes, but... As someone who's, you know, wearing a funder's hat, I have to be honest enough to say that the funding situation, especially in Europe, is desperate in a sense that it's very hard to get funding that allows you to work freely, that allows you to be a bit more agile in order to adapt to, you know, problems that we cannot foresee. Obviously, it's part of our funding strategy to enable folks to get exactly this kind of funding. This is what we did with SEMAS. But, you know, that's a huge risk to take as well. Massively, it's yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's why private foundations may be able to do it. But with public funding, I mean, we also need to look in the mirror here. Do we want for public funds, you know, this is our tax money, yeah. to be put under scrutiny to, to this kind of extent? I think when it comes to building up infrastructure, for example, for monitoring, this shouldn't be much of a debate anymore. I mean, we've seen that it works. And there are governmental initiatives that are now trying to finally set up similar structures. But uh, for what's yet to come, you know, maybe it is on, on foundations such as the Alfred Landecker Foundation really to take a first step 
be a bit uh, more risk affine and then at a later point, hopefully see public funding moving in the same direction. Yeah, or learning from our mistakes, that, that's possible too. I think you're right, because as you say, it's taxpayers' money and there has to be accountability for how the funds are spent. So it's it's hard to innovate and take risks in funding when it is public funding. But really, Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us on Zooming In and hate so much to think about, so much to ponder about. I'm hoping if we speak again in a year or two, that things will seem much brighter and let's hope the work that the Alfred Landecker Foundation really, really makes a difference. Lydia, thanks for the exchange and obviously for the wonderful work that you're doing. I'm a big fan of your platform here and, and yeah, thanks for having me. Seriously. Our pleasure. All the very best.